We are in our last week of this series, Secrets in the Kingdom. And if you missed last week, you can always find it on YouTube or the podcast. But Pastor Ben was up here and he absolutely crushed it. And I'm excited to close this series because what we've been doing over the last three to four weeks is we've been opening up the parables that Jesus told. And as we open up these parables and as we study the scriptures there, there's this amazing insight for what we understand the kingdom of God to be like. And so tonight we're opening up to Luke 10. And we're going to read probably one of the most famous parables Jesus ever told. It's the parable of the Good Samaritan. And when this story is told, this famous question is asked. It's this question of, who is my neighbor? But before we get to that, I want us to talk a little bit about neighbors. Because neighbors are, it's a weird situation. That just because someone lives next to you, there can be this, I don't even know how to describe it, this feeling of like, need to connect with them or to know them. And right now, I don't know if you guys knew this either, but my wife and I, we live in a house. Did, did you guys know that? Okay. But I'm not going to talk about that. But when we used to live in an apartment, we, we lived in a fourplex, which was us and three other people. Uh, and in my house, like we've got walls and a fence and a yard and there's like dividing. Apartments are weird. Like, do we ever think about that? You essentially live in one big house with a bunch of other people you don't know. Like, Kind of weird, really awkward. In, in our situation, there was only three neighbors that we had to deal with. And I say deal with because you're about to see. The first one was a guy who lived across the, uh, right across the hall from us. And let's just say he really loved plants. You guys picking up one? Every time we walked into the hallway, it was like we got smacked in the face by the plant smell. I'll just tell you, he was a really chill neighbor. You guys <laughs> getting that, you know? But otherwise, he was fine. We didn't ever see him because he had stuff he was doing on the low. But below him, uh, there was this other lady, and she worked nights, and she was a single old lady, but I never saw her. We lived there for two years, and I don't know, if you work nights, your neighbors think you're weird. Like, let's just lay that out there, because she would come at the the oddest of hours. She would come home, and it'd be like 2 a.m., and then she'd leave at 3.30, and like, we never saw her. Also, possible hoarding situation, just not, not great. But the third neighbor, she was the one that lived directly below us. And she, again, she was about 75, single, lived by herself, but unbelievably angry at everything all the time. Do any of you know like a cranky old lady like that? Oh my goodness. Nobody could ever get it right. And here's two stories for you. The first one is my wife will bake every once in a while. Sometimes it's stress baking. She just kind of enjoys it. It's like a hobby, whatever. And she'll bake cookies. And the problem is, if she makes a dozen cookies, she'll eat two and I'll eat ten. Like, this is just how it rolls in our house. So as the kind, good neighbors that we try to be, we, we give out the cookies and the baked goods when we make them. So we give it to the, the weed guy. And you know he liked the cookies. Like, no problem there. <laughs> then we give it to the lady downstairs below him. And I don't know. We put them on the floor. And like I said, we never saw her. So they disappeared at some time. And then we gave them to the last lady. And all we did was set them on the door. We put a little nice note and then we left. Like we didn't want to bother or nothing, no problem. The next day we walk outside and we're walking past her patio. And she says, hey, come over here. And so we walk over, me and my innocent little wife, if you've ever met her. She's like, you have to stop giving me baked goods. I'm on a diet. (laughs) And I was just mind blown that she would chastise us, yell at us, and, and, and be mad that we would try to be generous and kind to her because, sorry, we didn't know she was on a diet. Like, word of advice, just throw the cookies away. Like, I wasn't going to come back and check to see if she ate them. The second story kind of goes a little bit different, but it's just as crazy. We lived upstairs, and our apartment wasn't that big. And one time we had too many people over. I would say our apartment, we had like 15-ish, 18-ish people, which was way too many. But we liked to entertain, and so we had all our friends come over. 
And in apartments or in dorm rooms, maybe you guys know this, it can get loud quick. So she's below, and she claims she was hitting the ceiling with a broom, which, is that not like stuff that happens in cartoons? This is, we've got a bunch of people going on, there's, there's, there's like board games and, and fun happening, so I don't hear it. But rather than be a sensible person, like a normal, normal common person would what? Open the door, walk upstairs, and knock. No, not angry old 75-year-old single, angry 75-year-old single lady who lived downstairs. No, she opened her door and just began to scream into the hallway. F words, and, and she's, she's screaming all these obscenities. She's just laying loose into the hallway. And I hear the other lady who works nights pop her head out, see what's going on. But I'm just like shook. I'm like, what is going on? The next day, I had to go down there and address her as a 21-year-old, and I had to say, hey, I know you're 75, but this is actually how you do conflict. And it was really awkward and really weird. You know, I gave her my phone number. I was like, you can just text me. Do you text? And she was like, yes, I text. She was super mad. But it ended up being okay, and we got along with her. But it was in those moments where I wrestled with that question. Who really is my neighbor? I wanted to know, who did I really need to love? I wanted to put boundaries and put some people in and some people out because, to be honest, it would be easier to love the guy across the hall than the lady who lived under me, right? And maybe you live in the dorms now and you've got people on either side of you, you've got people across the hall, you've got people in class, you've got coworkers, you've got family, you've got other people who live next to you in your apartment and you're wrestling with this question too. Who really is my neighbor? Who do I need to love? Who's in and who's out? And as we wrestle with this question, Jesus brings up something different. Because I want to know, who can I ignore? Like, honestly, like, who can I look the other way when I see them struggling? But as we ask that, Jesus tells this story. Because rather than, who is my neighbor? Jesus wants to answer the question for us tonight. How are we supposed to be a neighbor? How are we supposed to love and care for people? And this is the key question. That as important as it is to know who, it's even more important to know how. The who to love is important. Don't get me wrong. The story will address that. But the the how to love is so far greater. Because the who to love, maybe you've recognized this, is constantly changing. That maybe you live in a place now, but you're eventually going to move. Or maybe you're in a class now, but next semester you might be in new classes. Or you're at a job now, but you might be at another job in the future. And so the who is in your proximity. The people of influence you have, those people are constantly changing. But the how, the how we love people never changes. The how we are called to love and to care for others is a constant, while the who of our neighbor may be ever-changing. And so rather than draw boundaries around who to love, Jesus points us to a greater question. How are we supposed to be a neighbor? And with that, I encourage you to open up to Luke 10, and we're going to read verses 25 through 37. But as you flip there, I'm going to pray. Father, thank you tonight for your word. Thank you for the truth of this parable. Thank you for the story of the Good Samaritan. Would you speak to us by your spirit through your word? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Luke 10, starting at verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. He said, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus replied, what is written in the law? How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, and so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Right away in these first couple of verses, there's a lot of key information coming at us. And I don't want us to just throw these away, because maybe you notice Jesus hasn't even started telling the story. 
But we get introduced to this man. The text calls him the expert in the law. I'm going to call him for the rest of tonight the lawyer. But as I use that word lawyer, don't get it backwards and think of courtrooms, suits, and like judges. That's not exactly what's happening here. That this man is a lawyer because he's an expert in the law and he's someone who has dedicated his life to studying the Jewish law. So courtroom lawyers, the way they function is they would defend a person, right? They would know the law, they would memorize the law, they'd master the law so that they could defend a person. This Jewish lawyer, he would have memorized and mastered the 613 Jewish laws. That was his life devotion. He gave his whole life to mastering this set of laws, and you actually have them. If you hold the Bible tonight, you could flip to these 613 laws. They're found in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. And he would have memorized those books, had them encoded in his brain. Anytime someone would have asked, he would have been able to pull it out of his back pocket, pull it out, and, and let them know exactly what the law said. And it's this man who stands up to test Jesus. And as he stands up to test him, you see his motive there. That this isn't just some friendly question he's about to ask, but rather it's a debate. Any of you watch any UFC or MMA or maybe you've seen it, like, you know when those guys, they like stand up and they're like almost dude kissing as they're like fronting on each other? And that's the disposition of this guy. Like he stands up, he's chest puffed, he's about to test Jesus. Like he's about to go down. This guy's going down. He, he is fronting. And it's in that moment he throws his first jab. He says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And as he asks this question, we start to realize he doesn't really want the answer. And to be honest, we do this all the time, right? You ever ask a question, but you're kind of fishing for something? Like, gentlemen, let me talk exclusively to the guys in the room for a second. Listen to this. If there is a female who ever asks you a question, do I look fat in this? There is a correct answer there. But it is not the answer you may be thinking on first look. No, 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 sir. If they even stop for a second and think, you got it wrong. Like, I'm telling you, if it comes out of her mouth, do I look fat in this? No, no. And she is looking for an answer to boost confidence, to, to, to show affection, to show love. And she's looking for something. She's asking a question, but she doesn't really want the answer. And in the same way, this lawyer is asking a question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? But he doesn't really want the answer. Because at this time, Jesus had become wildly famous. And Jesus had become famous for his emphasis on grace to enter the kingdom. This teaching was radically different than any other approach out there. That Jews, including this lawyer, believed in, in a works-based salvation. That if you followed the Torah, memorized the law, lived according to the law, offered the sacrifice, and, and fairly lived an upright life, maybe you had a chance into heaven. And so this is this man who's dedicated his whole life to this set of beliefs. And now there's this Jesus guy walking around tricking all these people, he thinks, telling them about grace, telling them about love, tell him about this randomly different kingdom. And so he defends the law. He stands up. He tries to trap Jesus. He's fishing for something. He wants a grace answer, but Jesus is too smart for that. Jesus swerves it. He sidesteps it, and he asks the question himself. He says, what does the law say? And it's at that moment, you need to picture what the lawyer's disposition would have changed from. Remember, he stood up ready to fight, ready to brawl, chest puffed, excited, chin up. And Jesus asked this return question, and he deflates, and his head sinks, and he gets sad, because this was his knockout punch. This was his chance. He's a lawyer. This was his big case. He was standing up to test Jesus, this famous Jesus of Nazareth. He'd thrown this punch. He knew the answer. He was expecting this grace, and he just ends up quoting the same scripture he'd already memorized. Deuteronomy comes straight 
from Deuteronomy 6, love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. He's always said that. That's what he's always answered. Leviticus 19, love your neighbor as yourself. I mean, that's the same old scripture he'd always worked with his whole life. This was supposed to be his big break. But as he responds with those scriptures, Jesus affirms his response. That actually later in Matthew 22, Jesus will say almost the same thing, and he'll call it the greatest of all commandments. And these greatest of all commandments, they are the way to inherit eternal life, whether you're Jewish or Christian. But the struggle here is, the tricky part, is the lawyer didn't understand what it meant yet to love God with all of his heart. That the lawyer, he didn't have the cross. He didn't have the resurrection. He didn't have the Messiah in full picture. He didn't have the Holy Spirit poured out. He didn't know yet what God was going to do for him. So when it says, love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, love the Lord with everything you got, this lawyer has no idea what that means. He can verbally say it, but his actions, his heart, his mind, his soul are nowhere near hitting the mark. Right? This is, this is this man who's so confused even though he has the right answer. And when we sit here tonight with the cross, with the resurrection, with the pouring out and, and of the Holy Spirit, we can recognize that the greatest commandments of loving God focuses so little on what we do and so much on what Christ has already done. How do you inherit eternal life? You love him for everything that he's done. You see the cross and you accept it. And you now live in in partnership with the Holy Spirit. And as you love God with all of who you are, you then love other people too. This is what Jesus is teaching, but the lawyer didn't get it. He didn't understand, and so he got defensive. He tried to justify himself. And so he flips and he asks a different question. Instead, he asks, and who is my neighbor? The lawyer here wants to know who he has to love to make it into the kingdom of God. He wants to draw those boundaries. Who's in and who's out? Where does my love get to stop? Where can I get off the hook? How much do I need to do? It's in response to that that Jesus finishes the parable. Starting in verse 30, he says this. A man was going down from Jerusalem and Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to the place, saw him and passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan. He traveled along and he came to where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and he bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and he gave him to the innkeeper. He said, look after him. And when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Here, Jesus is setting up the scene for us and telling us the story. And when the scene is set up, I need you to picture this because the original audience would have known exactly what he's talking about. That he's describing here an extremely famous road in the time. That it's a 17 mile long winding road from Jerusalem to Jericho. And as it winds through the mountains, it rises about 3,000 feet in elevation. But this road is not famous because of its distance nor its height. It's famous because of its danger. That this road was common for robberies, for murders, for thuggings, for people being beaten up and stolen and left there. That this is what this road was common for. It was so common that the road got the nickname the way of blood. That's the scene Jesus is painting for his original audience. And it's in that place this man gets attacked. He's left there, naked, bleeding, and the text says half dead. That half dead is so important for us to pick up on. As I describe him through the rest of the sermon, I'm going to tell you it was the half dead man. 
Because as people walked by, they would have walked along this super famous road. And as they would have seen him, they would have been unable to tell, is this guy dead or alive? That's the physical condition he's in as he lays there in his own pool of blood. But they don't even know. Is his heart still beating? Is he still breathing? And it's that scene where Jesus tells us this first character walks by. And it's the priest. At that, the listeners of the original audience would have let out a deep sigh of relief. (laughs) Lucky for this man, he shouldn't have been walking on this road alone anyway, but at least the priest showed up. Because priests at the time, they were the holy men. They were the ones who represented God to the people. They were the ones who sat in the gap between people and God. They were the ones who were supposed to get it right. How lucky for this guy that he would have a priest stumble upon him. Yet the text says the priest saw the man and passed by on the other side. He totally left the dude to die. Some scholars believe the road would have probably only been as big as this gap. A couple feet of cross. And so to avoid this man, he almost would have had to step over his corpse. And he walks and he steps over him. But this is the holy man. This is the guy who is supposed to be most like God. You're the man of God. Do something. This priest represented God to the people, yet he failed to help this man in need. But before we judge that priest, think about this. The Jews had many laws concerning cleanliness in this day. And there were even more so for that of priests. And it was told and taught that if a priest touched a dead body, they would have been unclean for about a week. And this uncleanliness would have made them unable to worship, made them unable to lead in the synagogue or the temple, and would have made them unable to participate in community. I mean, it was a serious business to be deemed unclean. And so the priest comes across this half-dead man. He doesn't know. He can't tell. But he really doesn't want to be unclean. And we don't know yet if the, man is walking from, if the priest is walking from Jerusalem to Jericho or Jericho to Jerusalem. And it matters. It does. Because if you were hypothetically to, to, to imagine this with me, let's say he's going from Jericho to Jerusalem. Most of the priests lived in Jericho at the time. And they would have traveled this 17 miles twice a year. And as they traveled this this, this journey twice a year, they would have went to Jerusalem where they would have served as the priest for one week only. So they worked two weeks out of the entire year, which sounds like a kind of nice gig. If you're looking for a job, maybe Jewish priest in the ancient Middle East. Uh, But they would have traveled this road and he would have seen this body and he would have been on the way to work to do his six months worth of work in one week. He would have been on his way and maybe he helps the man. But as he bends over to kind of to check on him, he finds out he actually has died. And now he's unclean and he can't do what he's going to do. He can't work in the temple. He can't work in the synagogue. He can't, he can't do his priestly duties. And so he forfeits half a year's worth of work at the chance this man might survive. Flip the script. Let's say he's going from Jerusalem to Jericho. He's done his work. He's done his week and he's going back home. He's got a family, he's got people that are relying on him, and on his back he would have carried his wages. Now it was typical for priests at the time, as they carried their wages on their back, it would have been food. That people came to the temple, they sacrificed food, and the priests got to take that home as their wages. So now as he's coming across, carrying all of his half of a year's wages on his back, going back home, he would have came across a half-dead man. And he thinks to himself, is it worth it? Should I help him? Because if he's dead, not only am I unclean, but the food on my back is unclean. And so if I help this man and he doesn't make it, 
My family might not eat this week. And so he steps over the body and he keeps going. Not only that, but the priest doesn't know how long the man's been there. He doesn't know that the robbers are still around. That he could be dead already. It could be a trap. He could be next. His life might be at risk. Imagine you're him. There are huge risks involved here. He's willing, is, is he willing to forego half a year's work, his family eating, or maybe even his life? Put yourself in those shoes. Would you take six months off a job to care for someone you don't know? They might not even make it. Would you make sure that maybe you or your family members might not eat so that someone else could maybe live? Would you lay your own life down so that someone else maybe has a chance? And so we see here, the priest, he chooses himself over the half-dead man, which isn't the righteous call, but it is a rational one. He got it wrong. Let's not let him off the hook there, but can you see why? Can you sit back here and judge him? How often have we known the thing we ought to do, but yet are too busy It's too inconvenient. It's not rational. It didn't make sense. I had constraints. I didn't know. And so we stepped over. And we kept walking. And we kept doing it. We just kept living. I mean, he could have been dead anyway, right? But luckily for this half-dead man, another person's coming. The second person Jesus describes is the Levite. And Levites were religious people because they had high standing in society at this time because of who their family was. And so finally, if the priest wouldn't have helped, I mean, at least the Levite was coming. Like, again, the crowd would have took a deep breath and been like, okay, like the priest is the man, but the Levite is like a close second. Like he's the closest man to God that a religious person could get. But the text tells us the same thing happens. The Levite saw him and passed by on the other side, which come on, this is a bad look for Jewish people. Everybody listening would have got a little uncomfortable as Jesus tells this story. Because not only does the religious leader, the priest, not get it, but the religious citizen, the Levite, he failed the half-dead man too. He steps over, he keeps walking, same rules, same conditions. That there are not two people more qualified, nor more called to help this man than the two that just showed up on the scene. But both of them failed. And so the listener, all hope is lost. This dead man, I mean, there's no chance for him. If these two didn't help, no one would. But Jesus describes a third person coming. And he calls this man the Samaritan. Right away, Jesus is hinting at a contradiction for us here in the text. He says, but the Samaritan. Did you catch that? He says, but the Samaritan. Because where the first two men failed, this guy will get it right. And I love that. That'll preach, right? Like I got to put that on a note guide and put it up on the screen. He got really excited about that point. And as much as I love that point, the Jews hated it. Because Jews thought Samaritans were scum. Like, I can't even tell you how how much hate and dislike there were between these two groups. That they had an ancient rivalry dating back to the ancient kings. That Jews hated Samaritans. And Samaritans hated Jews. I thought all week, how can I convey this to the people? Today, if you didn't know, Vikings and the Packers played. But it is no Vikings-Packers debate here. No, 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 no. No, it's not some USD, NDSU, SDSU rivalry. No. It's not some Democrat versus Republican-like disagreements. No. These people hated each other. 
deep in their souls, they were taught from a young age that the other people group were disgusting. They had no value, no worth. Why would they ever associate with these people? They hated each other. And that's the person Jesus puts on the scene next. That's the person Jesus makes the hero of the story. It's this man who will teach us how to be a neighbor. And the first thing he tells us that he does is the Samaritan saw him and took pity on him. Now I need to explain that word pity. Because to us it has some negative connotations, but in the original Greek language that it was written in, pity was easily swapped out for the word compassion. So what's being described here is where the other two men walk up and they saw him. Remember, they probably had to step over his body. They saw him, but their heart was not moved. The Samaritan comes along and he sees him and he has pity. He has compassion. When the other two men just looked, the, the good Samaritan felt compassion. And in this, we recognize that seeing people only matters if our heart is for them too. The easiest example I can give you for this is a homeless example. I imagine most of us, if not all of us in the room, have been in some situation where we've pulled up to an, a, a, off the interstate or out of a Walmart or off just another street corner and we saw the person standing there holding a sign. And I get and totally understand that these situations are really complicated. There is no perfect right answer. But as a Christian, let me tell you this. We need to see them and our heart should have compassion for them regardless of the situation. Because they are a child of God and maybe they stand there for, for wrong reasons or maybe they're truly on desperate times. Your heart should break for God's children who find themselves in tough situations. But too often I, in myself, I, I see them and I look away. Because my heart's not for them. Now I don't know exactly what the action is there but I know we need to see people and love people. An even more real example, as we go to classrooms and, and workplaces almost every day, all the time. And as we're in those places, we rub shoulders with other people, right? We see them. We sit next to them. We interact with them. We maybe get to know them. And it's when we see those people and they come in and you can tell. I mean, something's just not right. They, just, they seem off. They seem troubled. There's, there's something in their life that, that's hard. And I've done it, and maybe you've done it, where you see them, and you look the other way. Like, I see you struggling, but I don't know if it's my place. Ah, uh, someone else is going to step in and do it. They probably don't want me in their business. Ah, uh, they're probably okay. I got, a, I got a really busy day anyway. And so we saw them, but we looked more like the priest and the Levite than we do the Good Samaritan, because our heart's not for them. We need to see people and love people. And that love leads us to action. The text says this. He went to him and bandaged his wounds with oil and wine. Now oil was a common painkiller in this day. While wine was common for treating wounds. And when I, when I use that word common. Don't confuse it and think they were inexpensive. No, no, no. Oil and wine were extremely expensive. That now this good Samaritan has come upon this half dead man. He's risked his time. His life. His energy. His heart has gone out to him. And now he's using his money. His financial resources, the things he has brought on his trip, he's giving to this man. And I want to tell you, the Good Samaritan gives sacrificially to help. Same constraints, same struggles, same hardships as every other person who walked along this road. His life was at risk too. He risked being unclean too. Everything didn't make sense for him to give, and yet he did. When it wasn't convenient, when it wasn't easy, and when it wasn't clear. It says he put him on his own donkey. 
More sacrificing. Here, I don't even have time for it, but there's an incredible role reversal that's happened. That the Samaritan now is riding the donkey, that, or the, the, the half-dead man is now riding the donkey that the Samaritan came on. And now the Samaritan would have taken the rope and led the donkey to the village. And the, the place where you lead a donkey in this culture was the place of a servant. So the Samaritan gets off of his donkey and takes the place of a servant, trading this half-dead man, giving him life and hope by putting him in the place where the good Samaritan should have been. There's unbelievable sacrifice that's happening here. It says this, he brought him to an end and it took care of him. More sacrifice, more time, more investment. Check this out. The next day, he took two denarii and he gave them to the innkeeper. He said, look after him. And when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. <laughs> this is unreal. This is unreal what just happened. He brings him to an inn and he pays two denarii, which for us means nothing. But for them, two denarii was two days worth of wages. And two days worth of wages would have covered two months worth of innkeepers. Two months this man who he's never met, who he never knew, can now stay at this place and bandage his wounds and heal. Not only that, he says, I'm coming back. And when I do, anything above the two months, any extra expense, any, any extra, extra medical supplies, anything else, I'll pay it. The Samaritan pulls up, writes a blank check, and slides it over, no questions asked. Whatever that man needs, it's on him. The good Samaritan truly is the good Samaritan because of all he did for the half-dead man. He gave so much and so sacrificially beyond what made sense. What the other two were unwilling to do, he did. He saw this man. He was filled with compassion and he loved him. He acted. He gave sacrificially. And I wish at this point, oh man, I, I wish so bad I could address all your situations and I could lay down this blanket statement and say, this is how you love sacrificially. But I can't. That just like the who changes constantly, the situation changes constantly. Not only that, but what's sacrificed for me may not be sacrificed for you. And what's sacrificed for you may not be sacrificed for the person next to you. We all live in our different story as we walk alongside God, but the call is still the same. The how never changes. It's sacrificial love. That I'll pose you two examples. Maybe this week, you go and you ask a coworker out to lunch. And it's that coworker who, oh man, is so annoying. <laughs> Like, they're so annoying, and everybody just can't stand this person, and everyone just kind of avoids this person and ignores this person and tries to not have the cubicle next to this person. That coworker is so annoying, but you see them, and instead of ignoring them, thinking someone else will take care of it, someone else will love them, you step in, and you say, actually, I'll love you. I'll take you to lunch. I'll hear your story. I'll see you. I'll care for you. I'll give sacrificially, even though nobody else will. What would that say to everybody else about who Christ is? What would that say to coworkers and people who see, man, everyone thinks this person's annoying, but that person goes out of their way to love people? Second situation, maybe you've got a roommate who you're living with, someone you know, a friend, and you can just tell they're struggling financially. And so not being weird about it, you just offer, hey, I'd love to buy your groceries this week. Now I know right now you're thinking, ah, oh, but we're, we're college students, we're all broke, young adults, we just got that first paycheck, but it's not that big. Like, we're all sitting back trying to write off the story already. All these excuses, it's not rational, it doesn't make sense. But what if God called you to it? And what if he placed it in your path? And what if that person is there and nobody else is going to care for them, but you're there? Would you love sacrificially? Would you see them and would you care? 
It's in these places where Jesus ends the parable. But as he ends the parable, the conversation's not over. In verse 36, he says this. Which of the three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. That after giving these three examples, Jesus turns and he asks, which of these three do you think was a neighbor? Which is a super fascinating question because that's not what the guy asked. He says, who's my neighbor? But Jesus flips it and he says, how do you be a neighbor? Jesus in his wisdom, in his insight, in his deity, he flips this question. And instead of about being who, it's about how. The story's never been about who is a neighbor. Rather, it's always been about acting as a neighbor. I'll invite the team up. This has nothing to do with location and everything to do with love. It's got nothing to do with who's in and who's out, but about a whole bunch of people who need to be seen and cared for. This has nothing to do with proximity and everything to do with our purpose here on earth. We are to love people with everything we have, love them with all of our heart, and love God. That's what the call is. It's the greatest commandment. Eventually, the lawyer responds by saying, the one who had mercy on him. If you noticed, he couldn't even utter the word Samaritan. That he knows the answer, but he can't even bring himself to acknowledge the whole truth. That's the hate that's here. Jesus concludes, he says, go and do likewise. And to be honest, I would love to end the message right there. I think that would preach. We'd get up, we'd sing these songs, and I'd say, go, do, love, be a neighbor. Come on, people, let's, let's go, let's go, let's do it. But if I preach that message and we leave thinking just that, we've missed the point of the text. That the point of the text has never been about doing. That's never been. Remember the initial question this guy asked. He said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus instantly flipped it around, flipped it on him. It's never been about doing. And the reason it's never been about doing is because we cannot stack up to the Good Samaritan. That all across human history, there has never been another Good Samaritan besides Jesus. That we can strive for this level of love, but Jesus is the only Good Samaritan. He is the only person, when he was walking along that path, he was the only person willing to risk his life so that everyone could live. He was the only person who traded spots with the half-dead man so that the half-dead man could maybe survive. He was the only person who risked everything so that we might give something. He was the one who paid it all and said, I'm coming back and I'll finish what I started. That's Jesus. That at one point, you and I were the half-dead man. I love that language. Because at one point, we were physically alive, but dead to God. Apart from him. He always longed for you, he always cared for you, but you chose to not be with him. That you maybe were physically in a body, alive, but you were spiritually dead, apart from God. And it was at that point Christ saw you. And he didn't, he didn't pass you by. He loved you. He cared for you. He chose you. He died for you. Jesus is the good Samaritan. So yes, the message is go and do likewise. That we should be a neighbor. We should love people sacrificially. We should go extravagantly above and beyond what we're meant to do. But we do that because Jesus did it first. I'll finish with this. There's this quote out there by a guy named Jefferson Bethke. He's a famous author and speaker. And he has this quote where it says, where religion says do, 
Jesus says, done. I love that. Because if we go out of here trying to muster up our strength and our skill to try to conquer and do and please God, we'll never measure up. But if we leave this place loving God with everything that we have because Jesus has already done the work, oh man, that'll change everything. That'll help us love people. Religion says do. Jesus has already done it. With that, pray with me. Father, thank you tonight for your word. Thank you for the story of the Good Samaritan. Thank you that we can have life in you. Thank you for you being the Good Samaritan, Jesus. And I pray from this place we would take steps of faith to continue to love you with everything, God. That if there's, there's things holding us back tonight, if there's things we haven't surrendered, if there's things in our life that are sin, that are evil, that are apart from you, God, let us shed that tonight. And let us step to you and say, God, you can have all of me. All of who I am is yours, God. Would you lead us in those moments of surrender, of repentance, of, of just entire consecration to you? Would you help us tonight? And as we love you with all of our heart, would you send us to love the people that are around us? Not because we have to, but because we love you so bad and that's what you asked us to do. So God, lead your people. Thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.